Thank you so much for that good ministry to us. I don't know how the folks in our music ministry continue service after service after service to just pour all of this out. When do you ever have time to rehearse everything? We are so very, very grateful for it. I hope that you are enjoying the reading of Pilgrim's Progress, and it might be that some of you have not felt that you actually could enter into that for the perhaps reasons of time or something. But uh, if you haven't yet, but you would like to, I would like to encourage you just to pick right up with where we are in our reading rather than starting at the beginning and trying to catch up. That can be a little discouraging. And you can begin with what we have on our worship guide for our installment this week in our reading. I have a PowerPoint tonight to discuss one particular matter. And it's something that people, I guess, almost since the time that Bunyan authored this, have wondered about. The reading that we have for this coming week will be from the conversing with Talkative. I don't know if you recognized anybody in Talkative, but that's quite a character that he portrays there. And maybe perhaps all of us have a little bit of that in us. But we're going to read from that conversation, the end of that conversation, all the way through to Faithful's Martyrdom in Vanity Fair. And I really would like to encourage everyone, even if you haven't been reading, to pick up the reading and to really get a hold of the way that Bunyan describes Vanity Fair. That's the world that we're living in, and the Christian people have always been living in. And Bunyan does just a marvelous job, not only of describing it, but also of giving the reaction of the world to people who are truly pilgrims, and they're marked by it uh, in every distinctive way. But what I want to take up tonight is this matter that we come to have a question about when we read of Christian or pilgrim coming to the wicked gate, and then we read later on in the story of him coming to the cross, and then the burden falls off. And the question that has been being asked for all these centuries is what question? When actually was he saved? Did it occur at the wicked gate or did it occur at the cross? Well, I'm sure that there may be some here who have pretty dogmatic opinion about that. And there may be a lot of folks who are not quite sure what to think about that. What I would like to do is offer my dogmatic opinion (laughs) tonight. And it really is going to be based on at least five things within not only the first part of the story, but the second part of the story, and I hope to convince you of my viewpoint tonight. I believe very firmly that Christian was saved at the wicked gate, and here are five reasons that I do. Number one, because that is where evangelists directed him to go. You're a poor evangelist if you're not directing people right to the place where they will be forgiven of their sin. You'd be a poor evangelist to direct people to something preparatory rather than something decisive. This man 
Bunyan is portraying as the evangelist. An evangelist directs him to this gate. Secondly, there's an explanation that it's easy to overlook. When Pilgrim comes to the gate and he's about to enter, and you remember that the gatekeeper, whom Bunyan names Goodwill, gives him a tug. And of course, Christian asks about that. What was that all about? And Goodwill's answer to that is in terms of someone named Beelzebub. And Beelzebub and his companions have a castle very near to that gate, and they shoot arrows at those who are about to enter. And Goodwill explains that they do it if happily, from the standpoint of Beelzebub, they might die before they enter in. Now what's apparent from that is that both in Beelzebub's mind and Goodwill's mind, if you die outside the gate, you're lost. If you get inside the gate, you're not. You actually have life. Third reason that I believe he was saved at the wicked gate is because of the conversation that goes on between Christian and Goodwill. Christian, why truly... I do not know what had become of me there. Now what he's talking about is that incident in which he'd been directed to Mr. Legality and on his way the mountain, Mount Sinai, hung over his head with all of the law. I don't know what had become of me there had not evangelists happily met me again as I was musing in the midst of my dumps. But it was God's mercy that he came to me again for else I had never come hither. But now I am come, such a one as I am, more fit indeed for death by that mountain, than thus to stand talking with my Lord. But oh, what a favor is this to me, that yet I am admitted entrance here. And Goodwill responds, well, we make no objections against any, notwithstanding all that they've done before they come hither. They are in no wise cast out. And therefore, good Christian, come a little way with me and I will teach thee about the way that thou must go. So it's apparent from that conversation that Christian at this point feels safe and goodwill is assuring him, just in the words of our Lord, John 6, 37, those that come to me, I will know why he's cast out. You've come, you've not been cast out. A fourth reason that I believe he was saved at the wicked gate is because of the conversation a little later, even before he comes to the cross, that he has with these two men who come tumbling over the wall. They get onto the way, but they didn't get onto the way by going through the wicked gate. It's very disturbing to Christian. Why come you not in at the gate, which standeth at the beginning of the way? Know ye not that it is written that he that cometh not in by the door but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber? Now what Bunyan is portraying is that in Christians' understanding that gate is the door. And the passage that he's referring to is in John 10 where our Lord identifies the door to be who? Himself. And as we're going to find out in just a little bit, what you have in the portrayal that you have there is the same kind of thing that you have in John 10. The Lord's the door. He's also the way. 
<clears throat> he is the shepherd of the sheep. There's a composite of images that are there. And clearly in this discussion, Christian to formalist and hypocrisy saying to them, you didn't come through the door. The fifth reason that I believe that uh, Christian was saved at the wicked gate and Bunyan's intention is to show that is because when you come to the second part, <clears throat> which fewer Christians have read, but Lord willing, we will read. <clears throat> Finally, his wife, Christiana, and their four boys, and another woman by the name of Mercy, they come to the wicked gate. And when they arrive at that wicked gate, there's quite an extensive uh, portrayal of them entering. And in this case, Mercy individually. And she says to the gatekeeper, I'm come and if there's any grace and forgiveness of sins to spare, I beseech thy poor handmaid may be a partaker thereof. She's referring to herself as the poor handmaid. I beseech you that I may be a partaker thereof. And the keeper of the gate says, well, he says, then he took her by the hand and led her gently in and said, I pray for all them that believe on me by what means soever they come unto me. Then said they further unto him, we are sorry for our sins and beg of our Lord his pardon and further information what we must do. And he replies, I grant pardon. By word, now this is important because of what comes later. I grant pardon by word and deed. By word in the promise of forgiveness. By deed in the way I obtained it. So the gatekeeper is who? The gatekeeper's Christ. He's goodwill in the first part of that story. In other words, just as you have it, Christ is the door, and Christ is also the Savior. And in this case, the gatekeeper is saying, I obtained this pardon for you by deed. I'm, I'm giving you assurance by word. A very clear that Bunyan is portraying, again, the gate and coming through the gate as the time of salvation. But the sixth reason that I believe that uh, Bunyan is portraying salvation is taking place at that gate <clears throat> is because of later on in that second part when Christiana, her boys, and Mercy finally come with a man named Great Heart and they come to the place of the cross. Now we'll have to follow the conversation a little bit here. Bunyan says, I saw in my dream that they went on, and Greatheart went before them. So they went and came to the place where Christian's burden fell off his back and tumbled into a sepulcher. And here then they made a pause. And here also they blessed God. Now, said Christiana, it comes to my mind what was said to us at the gate, to wit, that we should have pardon by word and deed. By word, that is by promise. God has promised eternal life to us if we come. And by deed, to wit, in the way it was obtained. What the promise is, of that I know something. But what it is to have pardon by deed, or in the way it was obtained, Mr. Greatheart, I suppose you know. Wherefore, if you please, let us hear you discourse thereof. And you can see that what Bunyan is portraying here 
is the state that most people are in after they come to Christ and they believe His promise and call upon Him for their salvation. But they have very little understanding. You think of when you came to Christ, how much understanding did you actually have of what took place at the cross? In addition to that, did you have any real understanding of the imputed righteousness of Christ? When you called upon the I called upon the Lord when I was 12 years old. I was raised in a Christian home, but I'm sure I know that when I stood on that platform that night at a camp and the evangelist said to get down on our knees, there were three of us young people that went forward and called on the Lord to save us. The furthest thing from my mind was the cross. Atonement. The necessity of the shedding of blood. Imputation of Christ's righteousness to me. Bunyan is portraying people and they believe the promise but they don't really understand that all of this was obtained by deed. And in this conversation they go on then, Greatheart says, you know, Christiana said, I'd like to understand this. Greatheart says, pardon by the deed done is pardon obtained by someone for another that hath need thereof. Not the person pardoned, but in the way, saith another, in which I have obtained it. So then, and by the way, Greatheart doesn't mean himself. He's, he's basically putting himself in the position of the person who did it, obtain it, in this case Christ. So then, to speak to the question more at large, the pardon that you and mercy, this other woman, and these boys have attained, was obtained by another, to wit, by him that let you in at the gate. And he hath obtained it in this double way. He performed righteousness to cover you and spilt blood to wash you in. You can see what's happening. Greatheart is explaining that it is pardoned by promise. That's right. But now you need a much fuller understanding. This pardon was obtained by deed. And we stand here at the cross where so much of this was done. Christiana her response is, this is brave. Now I see there was something to be learned by our being pardoned by word and deed. Good mercy. Let us labor to keep this in mind. And my children, do you remember it also? But sir, was not this, was not this it that made my good Christian's burden fall from off his shoulder and that made him give three leaps for joy? She means... This understanding now, isn't that what happened? Great heart, yes. It was belief of this that cut those strings that could not be cut by any other means. And it was to give proof of the virtue of this that he was suffered to carry his burden to the cross. In other words, God allowed him to still have this great sense of burden. And it's basically by better understanding of the cross and the imputed righteousness of the one on the cross that in the end is the great reliever of the burden. You can be forgiven of sin and still carrying away around a great deal of consciousness of it that leaves you burdened. What is the remedy to that? The cross. Look at the cross. Look at Christ. Understand the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Christianity. I thought so. I thought that's what happened to Christian. For though my heart was lightful and joyous before, when she went through the wicked gate, it is ten times more lightsome and joyous now. And I'm persuaded by what I have felt, though I have felt but little as yet, that if the most burdened man in the world was here and did see and believe as I now do, it would make his heart the more merry and blithe. Okay, that's the end of that tonight. So, unless I put a slide up there with those on it again. Let me just click back. Okay, those are, those are, those are six, folks, evidences of Bunyan's own understanding. And the question then is, well, <clears throat> but he, he seems to have left it so confusing in that first part of the story and what really is being portrayed there. And what really is apparent is that Bunyan is essentially describing in Pilgrim's Progress his own experience. And he tells of this in his autobiography entitled Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. He came to a belief about 1649, but it was some four years until he finally was really released from the burden by really coming to understand these things that he is portraying about the cross of Christ and about the imputed righteousness of Christ. Spurgeon preached a sermon in which he took all of this up and he discussed all of this. And what Spurgeon pointed out was that it really... It really ought not be this way, actually, when you come to the wicked gate. At that point, you really ought to be freed from the burden. It ought to be that way. But Spurgeon actually said, but usually it happens the way that Bunyan is portraying it. There is an initial joy. There's an initial relief. But it isn't long until you discover as a new Christian that you still struggle with sin. And yet you say, but I am a Christian. And so you become more and more burdened. Experientially, you become more and more burdened. And it is only Christology and soteriology, as the Scripture actually presents it, that finally gives you great liberty and great release. Okay. We can argue about that, but I'm right. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was just, that was carnal, wasn't it? Just want you to know I'm still beset by sin. Okay, we, we tonight are going to continue our series that has to do with the Christian's relationship to the world. And I want to say tonight, because we're starting a new section, that this is one of the most important subjects that we can give attention to in the Word of God because our understanding and our acceptance it isn't just our mental grasp but it is yielding it's our acceptance our understanding and our acceptance and then application of what the Bible teaches on this subject has profound effects upon almost everything in our Christian lives. 
our marriages, our homes, what we expose our children to or don't, the way we raise our children, our expectation of worship when we gather as the Lord's people, what is acceptable to us and what is repugnant to us. Most of all, our relationship to the Lord, it's all profoundly affected by this particular matter. And one of the reasons for it is because as a Christian, we came out of that. And yet, we still exist here on the earth in it. So what we do with that affects everything profoundly. Now, the most significant thing for us to understand is not a particular application. The most significant thing for us to understand about our relationship, the most important thing for us to understand is what the Lord understands it to be. We want His mind about it. We want the mind of Christ about it. And I want to ask you to turn again to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John where our Lord, in His high priestly prayer to the Father, expresses this with three prepositional phrases. John 17, verse 6. He refers in the first place to the men you gave me. Here's the expression, out of the world. And the series thus far has been an attempt scripturally to understand what that means and how it happened. How did it happen that God the Father gave us to His Son out of the world? The second expression that He uses, verse 14, is when He says now, they are not of the world. You gave them to Me out of the world, and now they're not of it. They're not of the world, and he says it again in that 16th verse, they are not of the world. And then the third of the expressions when it comes to our relationship to the world is at the end of verse 18, I've sent them into the world. Folks, there it is in three phrases, given by the Father to the Son out of the world, so that now we are not of the world, and yet we are sent into the world. Those three phrases are entirely right. They are complete. They are sufficient. They are infallible. We can study them, meditate upon them, expound them, but we cannot improve upon them. You cannot improve upon those three statements. That is the mind of Christ about it. To know those three statements and understand them is to know everything about right relationship to the world. And to live in accordance with those three is the only right way to live. There is no other. It is to live according to those three. So tonight, we want to begin our next installment of this series, and it has to do then with this matter, verse 14, verse 16, 
of not being of the world now. Now what I want to do is call your very close attention to what our Lord states as the qualifier of that. You can almost say as the descriptor of it. Look again at verse 14. They are not of the world. Now here's the qualifier. Even as I am not of the world. That is so significant that in verse 16, he says it verbatim. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. What is meant by not of the world? The key is in that qualifier. And a second help for us about this, back in verse 14, is the fact that he can say, the world has hated them because they're not of it. That also is helpful in understanding then what is meant by, I'm not of the world. Big qualifier, the key to everything is, as I'm not of the world. But also really helpful is the other dimension of the world of fallen people. And you're really not being of the world as Christ is, is the reason the world reacts against you. And we truly then, without going any further, could just conclude that if the world does not react against me, I as yet am not sufficiently evidencing that I'm not of it. You can be certain that if the Lord worked your job, the world would react. You can be certain that if the Lord walked these streets, lived in this city, the world would react. If we are not of the world as he is not of the world, there will be a reaction. That's helpful. So we want to begin our understanding of that tonight. And let me just say at the outset, I'm not sure how far we'll be able to get with this this evening because of the time that we needed to use with Pilgrim's Progress. But it's really important for us to right away just dismiss from our minds a lot of surface matters. When our Lord says, they're not of the world even as I am not of the world, He doesn't just mean they no longer do worldly things, just like I don't do worldly things. Or they don't go to worldly places, just like I don't go to worldly places. That's all on the surface. What He really means at the root of this And what the Scripture everywhere in its explanations is testifying to is that this is a matter of our nature. And we began this series with two texts. One of them is 2 Peter 1, verse 4, where we're told that 
we have been made partakers, and I suggested that we memorize this, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Corruption in the world, our topic, through lust, we escaped it, we escaped that corruption by being made partakers of the divine nature. Now, there are other things that would be involved in they're not of the world even as I am not of the world. But that, folks, is the heart of it. That is the core of it. It is the matter of nature. And that needs to be qualified now. And we need to take some time at this point to really understand that this is not merely a repairing of what in us is the image of God. The sense in which we're not of the world has as its essence the matter of our having a nature like Christ's nature. But that is not just merely a repairing or a renewing of what the Bible refers to as our being made in the image of God. Now I want to settle on that for a little bit because in doing that, it will really help us sort through some things even when it comes to the matter of applications. You know, of course, that in the very first chapter of our Bible, God has recorded for us an internal determination or even conversation between the members of the Godhead. God said, let us. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In other words, let their rule be universal. Next verse, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And what I'm proposing, folks, is that this matter of our not being of the world as Christ is not of the world, that that is a matter of nature, but it is not the renewal of the image of God in us. It will affect that, but that is not the nature that we're speaking of and that you'll see the Scripture speaking of. And I think in order to help us with that, we should discuss this for just a moment. There's been a lot of, right through the history of Christianity, the thought, there's been a lot of thought and debate about what the image of God in man is. It's very apparent from the passage itself that it is that which distinguishes human beings from all the rest of earthly creation, especially animals that have similarities to humankind. Well, what about us actually distinguishes us from everything else in creation, even animals that have similarity to us? 
And it's been generally conceived and understood, and there's scripture backing for this, that it is a constitutional matter. It is a matter really of our constitution. That we have, among other things, we have a spiritual nature, we have a rational and a moral dimension that these things are godlike. We have immortality of soul. As God will never die, once we're conceived, we will never die. It may also consist in something relational, that we have capacity for fellowship with God. No animal, no matter how intelligent, has that capacity. Human beings do. And we have the capacity for a spiritual relationship with one another. Perhaps it's even some surmise that it even involves our function as rulers over all of creation. Psalm 8 seems to, surprise, seems to suggest that and support that. Okay, my, my point isn't to go into any great discussion of all of that. It's just to give enough fleshing out of it so that we have something in our understanding that we are all thinking similarly about. Here are the things that we do know for sure. One, that that image was not destroyed by the fall. Our being in the image of God was not destroyed when Adam and Eve sinned. And we know that because the Scripture continues to speak of us as being made in the image of God. The first time that this really shows up is in the ninth chapter of Genesis after the flood. Here's Noah and his family. And God says to them that he's establishing a covenant with them. And you remember that the sign of that covenant will be the rainbow. And in the midst of all of that, after the destruction of all human life, all earthly life except for that which was sheltered in the ark, you have God telling Noah that they can partake for food of all of these creatures. But God says, whoever sheds man's blood, this is different now. Animal blood is one thing. But whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. That continues to be the case even after the fall and the judgment of the flood. And in the New Testament, you have at least two passages. 1 Corinthians eleven seven says man is the image of God. James chapter 3, verse 9, it refers to the incongruity of blessing God with our tongues and then cursing men who are made in God's image. So without going further about that, the point is this. What is the image of God? Are people still conceived in their mother's wombs in the image of God? Do human beings today carry with them that image? And the answer is, biblically, yes. It remains intrinsic to being human. It's true of every human being, folks. It's true of every embryo. It is true of every mentally handicapped human being. 
It is true of every aged person with Alzheimer's. It is true of the most monstrous criminals. There are no exceptions to this. It's what differentiates mankind from all the rest of earthly creation. It was not lost in the fall. But secondly, it was severely defaced. Back in the 1990s, there was a book published that had to do, it's quite a thick book, it has to do with Charles Darwin and his struggle and finally his persuasion of evolution. Charles Darwin says that finally when he came to the place where he publicized it, he felt like he was confessing a murder. The authors of this book go into his writings, his experiences, his letters, his family life, and demonstrate conclusively that this man ended up struggling with his conscience and his understanding and finally really against everything that was inside of himself took the position that he did. Now one of the things that was so unsettling to him toward the beginning was when he was on Her Majesty's ship Beagle and you may have read about that voyage in the 1830s. And they were visiting various primitive civilizations. And when they came to the southern trip of South America and visited the Fugians, in his view, he encountered a wretched people. Quote, troubled spirits, unkempt, filthy, greasy, hair entangled, voices discordant, violent and without any dignity, sleeping on the wet ground, uncovered, coiled up like animals. Now listen to this. One can hardly make oneself believe that they are fellow creatures placed in the same world. And one of the things that really began to unsettle him about the thought that actually all human beings are human beings. And as he'd been taught made in the image of God. When he was raised in a Church of England background, he, when, he was a, when he was a boy, he wrote to his sisters and asked them what their favorite book of the Bible was. He said his favorite was the Gospel of John. It was well taught scripturally. But encountering some of these really primitive peoples made him wonder if they aren't some kind of a link between full humanity and the animal creation. And I'm using that as an illustration, folks, to say this. All of the people he encountered were made in the image of God, but it was so severely defaced in them that a man like him is asking, can they actually be human beings? But we also have to recognize that what Romans chapter 3 said to us two weeks ago about people's understanding about the fact that none of them seek God. About the fact there's no fear of God before their eyes. That none of them do righteousness. None of them do good. You remember all the passages that had to do with their speech and their ways. And that passage says that's true of 
every single human being. No matter how educated they are, no matter how refined they are, they really are just as that passage describes. They do not need to be primitive people to be described that way. Every human being, by nature, though he bears the image of God, is that way. It is so severely damaged in us. Now this needs to be qualified, and I told you I'm expanding a little bit on this, and the expansion will help us when we come back then to the primary thought here, that our being not of the world is a matter of nature. But that that is not the repairing of the image of God in us. It's not a reclamation of that. All people continue to bear the image of God and likeness to Him. This, however, is so damaged that in some cases you can hardly recognize it. But now the qualifier, folks, that doesn't mean that people are entirely incapable of doing good things. And this is, I think, where some of our ability to make right applications is helped by this understanding. We have men who, on Friday mornings, some of them I understand, go to a place close to the church here and have breakfast together, have good fellowship. Somebody makes breakfast for them. Probably bacon and eggs and toast and juice and coffee. The person who does that, the people who serve them may be lost people, but they're entirely capable of doing good things and doing them well. Lost people made in the image of God, but with that image severely defaced in them, can pitch in to help a neighbor, run errands, take someone with diabetes for dialysis. They may be people who love their children deeply. They can compose beautiful music. They can paint breathtaking landscapes. The history of the world testifies that people like that can even govern with equity and with a high degree of prudence and wisdom about the affairs of men. All of that is because they are made in the image of God (laughs) and because of God's common grace in the earth and the fact that He gifts people, even lost people, not with spiritual giftedness, but he gifts them, he endows them with abilities in some cases that are magnificent. The Bible does teach total depravity, but total depravity does not mean that every human being does all of the bad that he can all the time. Total depravity is a matter of every faculty of our being, every portion the totality of our being has been affected by the fall. And in the end, even when we do good things, it's not for the ultimate end that God intends. So Romans 3.23 says, we've all sinned in this respect. We've come short of the glory of God. Made in the image of God, yes, but constantly coming short of glorifying God.
1 Corinthians 10.31 says it's God's intention that whatever you eat or drink, that you do everything to His glory. The whole world, fallen as it is, carrying with it the image of God, doing many, many good things, is falling short of achieving the height of the glorification of God and His perfections, which He intends. And folks, that's a big thing. That is not minor. The illustration that I've used from time to time and that I used in this series that Andrew Fuller gave, which is the illustration of mutineers on a ship. They've changed the destination. They put the captain and the crew in a lifeboat. They put him off of the boat. They've seized control. They establish rules by which they govern their conduct so that they take care of each other. So that in a storm, everybody pitches in to try to salvage the voyage. Fuller says that is the way the Bible portrays the world of fallen people today. But none of it is for the glory of the captain or the true owners of the ship. They're all a bunch of thieves. It's not their world. Jonathan Edwards preached to people to try to convince them of their sin. Have you ever stopped to consider how many of God's animals you've eaten? By which he did not mean that it is a sin to eat the animals. Genesis 9 releases people to do that. By which he meant you are failing to recognize that every one of these creatures is not yours. They all belong to God. Have you ever eaten any of them with true thanksgiving to God? It's not your world. It's not your life. It's not your breath. Though you are made in the image of God. And though on board ship, you're doing many good things. But in none of it, Are you achieving the end for which God made human beings? So folks, what is meant then when the Bible says you've been made partaker of the divine nature and that is the explanation when it comes to your having escaped the corruption that is in the world. Well, let's go to that secondly. If being a partaker of the divine nature is not a matter just simply of the repairing, the reclaiming, the renewing of the image of God in me, what is it? And the best way to put it, folks, is this. This is the new life of regeneration. It is what the Lord Jesus talked about to Nicodemus. It is not the natural life, even the natural life made in the image of God. It is not the natural life being made better. Jesus said that to Nicodemus. That which is of the flesh is flesh. And by that he wasn't talking about the fallen nature. He was talking about our humanity. 
that which is of the flesh is flesh. But he went on to speak of a new life that is implanted in people. He said, when they, listen to the expression, when they are born of the Spirit. When they're born of the Holy... Listen to that language. That is not the renewal of the image of God. That is a birth, the birth of the Spirit of God. In that passage, John 3, verse 3, the Lord used this expression as a parallel, born again. He used this expression in 1 John 3, 9, or the Spirit of God did, born of God. Now, whenever we attempt to understand this, we run into the same difficulty that Nicodemus did. And our Lord's explanation to him was, Nicodemus, this is like, that's like trying to understand the wind. Where it comes from, where it goes. So is everyone who's born by the Spirit. There's a great mystery to this. But the fact that there's a mystery does not in any way negate the reality. There is such a thing as being born of the Spirit of God. Born again, born of God. And the Lord said that anyone who does not experience that will not see the kingdom of God. The only people ultimately who will be in Christ's kingdom are people who've been born twice. Once of the flesh and once of the Spirit. And it is remarkable that in 1 John 3, verse 9, the Spirit of God says something that you and I would never say. It's breathtaking. That verse and the surrounding context are talking about the fact that people who truly possess eternal life do not practice sin. And one of the reasons is this. This is what's breathtaking. Because God's sperma remains in them. Incredible. Translated seed in our Bibles. They cannot practice sin. It's impossible because God's seed remains in them. They've been partakers of a new nature. That nature cannot live that same way anymore any more than Christ could live that way. They're not of the world like I'm not of the world. I want to give to you four Scripture statements. You may want to jot these down. It's really helpful with this matter. With what matter? With the matter of understanding that we have a new life by virtue of regeneration Regeneration spoken of as being born of the Spirit, born again, born of God. Here are some scriptural statements that expand on that, four of them. Now just there's a commonality to these four. You see if you can catch it. Ephesians 2:5. We have been made alive together with Christ. Made alive together with Christ. Five verses later, Ephesians 2:10. We have been created in Christ Jesus. 
2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, many of you have memorized this, probably nearly every Christian has. And it includes this wording, if any man be in Christ, he is a new, our, our versions tend to translate creature, it's also the word for creation, he's a new creation, or a new creature. If he's in Christ, he's a new creature. And this one, the most amazing of all, Colossians 3.3, 3, this is the passage, folks, in which God says to us, look, you need to set your affection on things above where Christ is. And then the Spirit of God argues for that by saying this, your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's not here as it was when you were the old man. You are now the new man and your life is hidden with Christ. The, the ramifications of that in this passage are simply this, folks. That you and I look, for the most part, like the people all around us made in the image of God. What they can't see is that we have a life that they don't have. It's hidden. Where is it? In Christ. In God. Colossians 3.3. 3. Now listen to those statements again. Made alive together with Christ, created in Christ Jesus. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. What's common to all four of those statements? And many, many other statements like that in the New Testament. Folks, it is this, that the life that we have is whose life? It's Christ's life. This is not a positional thing on paper. This is the reality. A seed of God's life implanted in us. It is the life of Christ. We are new creations in Christ. And when the Lord Jesus says of those who were given by the Father to him out of the world, when he says, now they are not of it, even as I'm not of it, you can see that at the bottom of that is this thing we're looking at it's a difference of nature. And the nature that we have now is the nature of Christ. It's His life in us. You're probably aware of the fact that in the 18th century, the 1700s, when you had the wonderful, marvelous evangelical awakening and revival period that the Wesleys and 
Whitfield and John Newton and so many others participated in, that there was a circulation of really good literature. One of the books that had a profound influence on some, including George Whitfield, was a book written by a man named Henry Skugel, and it was entitled, now listen, you've got to listen to the title, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. The Life of God in the Soul of Man. That is different than being made in the image of God. The life of God in the soul of man. That book really proved to be the thing that brought Whitfield through. And he testified, though I had fasted and watched and prayed, yet I never knew what true religion was until God sent me that excellent treatise by the hand of my never-to-be-forgotten friend. Well, that friend was Charles Wesley. And Skugel explained his title this way. He speaks of true religion as a resemblance of the divine perfections, the image of the Almighty shining in the soul of man, a real participation of his nature. And he goes on and says it can be spoken of as, quote, God or Christ, not God, but Christ formed within them. He says, I know not how the nature of religion can be more fully expressed than by calling it a divine life. Now, folks, this isn't just God indwelling us. He does indwell us if we are Christians tonight. But this is more than that. And it certainly doesn't mean, on the other hand, going to another extreme, it doesn't mean that we become deity. When John and Edwards talked about this and clarified all of this, he said that it ought not to be taken to mean that we are made partakers of the essence of God, and so he coined a word, so we're godded with God. It doesn't mean that at all, that we become God. But it does mean that we possess a kind of life that in its very nature is the life that God has in Christ. The life of God in His Son incarnate. Think of it this way. All living things have the uniqueness of their life within themselves. It's that which sustains them. It isn't, for instance, like food that comes from the outside and that they continually partake of and then it becomes part of them. No, no. This is something that now is intrinsic to them. It's in them. It is their life. It's like life in a seed. That's the most mysterious thing, isn't it? The most brilliant people of all the ages cannot explain life in a seed. And then the fact that if you plant that, it will always bring forth of its kind. And it will persist in that right down through the centuries. You can find one of those buried in an ancient pyramid that was placed there by people's 2,000 years, 3,000 years before Christ, 
so that the dead Pharaoh would have something to eat on the other side. And here are these seeds and you plant them today. And what comes up? Exactly what came up 4,000 years ago when you planted a seed like that. Living things carry within themselves the germ of their kind of life. And it is the same with eternal life. The Spirit of God implants in us the life of God. And it reproduces after its kind. What is its kind? Christ. The image of Christ is what that seed produces. It can produce no other. And it will produce infallibly and unconquerably and irresistibly in the end. We will become like Him. And it will be due to the fact that His life was put in us by the Spirit of God. We were born of the Spirit that way. And all that, of course, folks, begins in regeneration. And that is why that the Lord Jesus Christ could say in that prayer in the most literal sense, and listen, He could say that of those disciples in all their ignorance and all their imperfections that we read about in the Gospels, He could say it of them in all their sinfulness and all their humanity. He could say of those men with all of those defects, he could say to God the Father, they're not of the world even as I'm not. That is how he could say that. Of imperfect, ignorant, failing, fearful, hesitant, disappointing disciples. He could say that because their nature had changed. And they were of the same nature as He was now incarnate. And dear people, that is why the Bible can say that when a person is in Christ and he's a new creation, the old things passed away. And everything's new. Everything is new. And when that really comes to possess your understanding and when you accept it, just begin to think of what that actually means then when you assess the culture around you and the degree to which you're comfortable and want to partake of what it produces, what it's fanatical about. Just think of this. You are not any longer of that in the same sense that Christ was not of it. Your nature's different. It is miraculously livingly different. And it changes all those appetites. 
And you can't live certain ways because God's seed is in you. And it will grow. And finally, when it's completed, we'll call it Christ-likeness. That's what's going on. And when you grasp that, there are a lot of these little questions that just seem to torment Christians and tear them up. They don't even count anymore. It's like, why are we even talking about that? The old things have passed away. And everything's new now. It's wonderful. Let's bow for prayer. Oh Lord, we pray that as we try to proceed scripturally with more and more understanding of what you've revealed about this, that it would really take possession of our hearts to the point where we would have the same responses to all the questions that Jesus Christ would if he were here and that he does from his throne in heaven. And loving Lord, we pray that the growth of this would be so encouraging to us and that it would liberate us that there might be a wonderful freedom in our lifestyle. And gracious Lord, we know that it would preserve us from many, many a misstep. And so we do pray again tonight for the opening of the eyes of our understanding. And most of all, that your Spirit would exert his powerful influence upon our wills so that we would will to have it so in all of its fruitfulness. And then, O oh, gracious Lord, we pray that we would begin to experience the many, many benefits that you describe in your word that heavenly-minded people possess. And we ask it in Christ Jesus' precious name. Amen. It just seemed <clears throat> that we ought to sing a number tonight that takes us to the very beginning of this. I'm doing that because I, I just have to ask you after a message like this, are you born again? Do you possess new life that is the very life of Christ? Or is the reason that you are so plagued and have such difficulty and there's such deadness is because you're essentially trying to live like a Christian, but you don't have the life of God in your soul. So it doesn't work well. It's not supposed to. It only works if you're like Christ. And then it grows. But apart from that, what a burden it is. 
What a burden it would be to try to live like a Christian when you weren't one. I'm sure that explains the, how, how miserable so many people are. You have to ask yourself tonight, and we're going to sing at 258 in your hymn book, we're going to sing, You Must Be Born Again. A ruler once came to Jesus by night, asked him the way of salvation and light. The master made answer in words true and plain, You must be born again. And maybe you're just now coming to realize that that's your great need. And if you would do just as Bunyan portrays it in Pilgrim's Progress, if you would just come, he will in no wise cast you out. And I want to urge you to do that tonight. We're going to sing this as an invitation hymn. I'd like to ask for a couple of our pastors to come forward here to the aisles. God has worked in your heart. Maybe he's been working in your heart for a long time and the breakthrough needs to come. And by God's grace, it's coming tonight. Amen. May the Lord bring you through. May you come through the wicked gate. By God's grace, may you feel the tug of the Lord Jesus Christ and pull you through to have eternal life. Let's sing together, 258. Come, please, tonight. Let someone help you. together the third stanza. You must be born of God. You must become a partaker of the divine nature. You must have the life of Christ in you. Do you have that? If you don't, would you please come forward tonight so that one of our men or one of our ladies can take you privately to a room and pray with you and help guide you like a good evangelist to calling on the Lord for salvation. Stanza four, would you come please? Stanza four, let's sing.
bow your heads, please? You must be born again. May God cause those words to run through and through and through your mind all this night long. May you wake up tonight with them in your mind. When you get up in the morning, may they go through your mind. May the Spirit of God continue to impress them on your soul. You must be born again. And if you are not, then every single second of your earthly life, you live in the peril of God instantly taking your life. There's a door closed to eternity. You can never cross that threshold and come back. You're gone. You're lost forever. Behold, today is the day of God's grace. Tonight is the call of God for your salvation. It is time for you to be born again. May God help you. Gracious Heavenly Father, all of us who know you by faith in Christ, and we know from experience that we are possessors of new life, we thank and praise you for that miracle of grace. And we ask tonight for friends, for family members, for people dear to us, people for whom perhaps many have prayed for many years, we ask, gracious Lord, save them to your glory. Bring them, we pray, to calling upon you for new birth. And we will thank you, gracious Lord, if you will do that this very night, this very week. We commit these lost people into your care. And we do so in Christ Jesus' precious name. Amen. Good night.